Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 135, Alexandra Natapoff, Snitching. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Sasha Natapoff. Sasha is the Lee Kreindler Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where she teaches criminal law. Her research focuses on the criminal justice system, wrongful convictions, and inequality, including a recent book focusing on the prosecution of misdemeanors. Our podcast today features Sasha's book, Snitching, Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice, the second edition of which was just published by NYU Press last year. In it, Sasha explores the problem of criminal informants from a variety of angles, including their effect on policing, plea bargaining, communities, and more importantly for this podcast, evidence. Criminal informants, after all, are a huge part of a modern criminal case. Yet, if you think about it, they involve significant risks. The government offers informants significant incentives for their testimony. And while that undoubtedly encourages witnesses to come forward, that also encourages fabrication. My conversation with Sasha reviews the problems of informant testimony and what the legal system might do to capture its benefits while avoiding its serious costs. Sasha, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. You've just published the second edition of your well-known book on criminal informants entitled Snitching. What got you interested in this topic way back when you started? I first learned about snitching in Baltimore. I was an assistant federal public defender, and I was also living in Baltimore, and I had neighbors and friends and other folks working in the community. And I began to learn just how important this world of what I have come to think of as the informant marketplace, just how influential it was in the criminal system, of course, in plea bargaining overwhelmingly, but also in the community, in the city, in the ways that people perceived police and the legal system. And I was intrigued and fascinated and frankly, kind of shocked that these trades and practices were going on right under everyone's nose and nobody outside the criminal system was really talking about it or writing about it. And so when I became a law professor, it was the first project that I took on. So I guess out of your experience, the book obviously looks at this problem of criminal informants from a whole bunch of angles, including what they do to police and prosecutors and the affected communities. As you might expect, what I'd like to do today is focus primarily on the evidentiary aspects of informant testimony. The first thing I want to ask you about is this fact that informants are compensated. And I don't really know why, but I had never really thought about this fact that informants are 
basically paid for their testimony, whether directly through forms of compensation or through reduced sentences. And paying for witness testimony outside of the expert context, which I am most familiar with, is usually the crime of witness tampering. But it seems to be okay in this context. So how should we think about this? And maybe more specifically, how has the law come to terms with this structural setup? So I just want to say how excited I am to get to talk to an expert on experts to talk about the use of paid informants, because you're absolutely right. We and the law does not conceptualize the informant as a paid witness. But of course, that's exactly what they are. They're paid often whether they testify or not. So they're paid in leniency and with benefits and with exceptional treatment by law enforcement long before our trial, long before anyone testifies. Indeed, they may often not testify at all and still receive significant benefits. So in effect, we're running a deregulated marketplace for information in which the government is paying suspects and defendants for information about other suspects and defendants. And we have chosen not to regulate it, not to conceptualize it, as you say, as paid witnesses. Courts have considered and rejected the theory that this is a form of bribery, although, of course, if a defendant paid a witness, it would be bribery and witness tampering, but the government is permitted to pay and compensate its informant witnesses in a way that we wouldn't and don't tolerate in any other space. So it's a really fascinating exception, if you will, or I think of it as the black market lurking beneath the more conventional way that we think about plea bargaining and criminal adjudication. And in many ways, I think in terms of incentives to lie, informant testimony seems way worse than expert testimony. When you're talking about experts, they have professional reputation that is constraining them in some way, and the payment is usually on an hourly basis and is subject to standard rates. So an expert can't really charge an enormous or exorbitant amount. And here what you have is often liberty being traded as the inducement, although you focus on other things in the book as well, including money or drugs or other things. How should we think about that aspect? So there are a lot of restrictions on expert testimony. Everyone knows that experts are a problem for this reason, but yet we don't seem to worry about it as much in terms of informants. Yeah, so you're right on point. In the informant world, almost everything is a little bit backwards. So we worry about paying experts with money. But as many judges have pointed out on the record, the inducement of liberty is far more powerful. People's own life and liberty is on the line when they're an informant. And so the inducements and the temptation to fabricate and lie are greater than they would be if they were merely being paid in cash. Although, as I describe in the book, of course, many informants are paid both in liberty and in money or sometimes just with money. And as you point out, unlike experts, there's almost no downside to lying when you're an informant. Perjury prosecutions are almost non-existent. Police and prosecutors are typically loath to go after their own informants because they're so reliant on the informant market to produce 
information. And so we almost never see punishment following known, recognized, well-established fabrications by informants. And much like experts, oddly enough, many informants are repeat players. They learn that they can work off charges by producing information, sometimes accurate, sometimes not about other people. And so we have professional information producers who are trading in what we might think of as the most democratically salient inducement that we have in the criminal system, which is liberty, punishment, and criminal conviction. This is what I got from your discussion of the Hoffa case in the book. The chief safeguard, at least according to the Supreme Court here, is the jury who is supposed to be able to check these kinds of incentives. How good are juries empirically at fulfilling this hope of being the gatekeeper or the safeguard to unreliable informant testimony? Yeah. So let's just take two steps back and notice that juries are structurally a weak safeguard because we almost never go to trial in our country. 95% of all convictions in the United States are the result not of a trial, but of a plea, of a bargain in a market that is suffused with the understanding that criminal liability can be worked off and mitigated through becoming an informant. So we rarely even get to the safeguard of the jury when it comes to informant use. The mere allegation that an informant might come forward, for example, with incriminating information is often enough to induce a plea. So we rarely test it. And pre-trial, there are very few safeguards. It is a profoundly unregulated space. Almost any deal goes, almost any kind of information can be extracted. Once we get to the jury, we are learning through new research that has really just taken hold in the last decade or so, that the jury is not very good at figuring out when informants are lying. They take informants at their word. They give them, as it were, a kind of aura of criminal expertise, much in the way that we worry about experts in other fields having an aura that the jury can't get around. And the jury doesn't know anything about the informant market. And so they tend to go with the story told by the informant and propounded by the government. The thing that I was disturbed to read, though, is that if you give mock jurors or psychological study subjects information about the fact that the witness has been compensated in these ways, it seems to have no effect on their decision-making. And it doesn't even matter if you give them jury instructions, re-emphasizing this point, that also doesn't seem to affect their decision-making. So you mentioned the case of uh, Jimmy Hoffa, which is the leading Supreme Court case, explaining why it is constitutional for the government to pay snitches, pay them in leniency and pay them in money. And what the court in Hoffa said is, look, we're gonna rely on the jury. We're gonna rely on cross-examination. We're gonna rely on information given to the jury to assess the reliability of the informant. And we're gonna rely on jury instructions. And that is enough to protect defendants and to protect the integrity of the system. And it turns out that none of those mechanisms are very good at getting the jury to be rigorous about its evaluation of informants. So one of the things we learned through psychological research, and as you mentioned, these mock studies, is that we tell jurors 
that informants are being paid and they convict at approximately the same rates as jurors who are not told that fact. In other words, the fact that there is an incentive and that the witness is being compensated for various psychological reasons does not affect the way that jurors evaluate reliability and whether the defendant should be convicted. And conversely, it turns out the mere allegation of a confession. In other words, when a jailhouse snitch comes forward and says, my cellmate confessed to me, that fact is psychologically extremely important to jurors. They can't get it out of their minds that there has been this allegation, even when they learn that the allegation itself may be deeply unreliable. I have to say, I find this rather shocking. (laughs) Welcome to my world. (laughs) You would think that these very strong incentives to lie would be reason to discount testimony that is in court. Any thoughts on why it is that people seem not to take into account this pretty critical piece of information? So the psychologists tell us that there are various cognitive biases and heuristics that affect the way jurors evaluate reliability, indeed, that affect all of us. It's the way that we evaluate why other people are behaving in the way that they do. And it turns out that human beings tend to ignore externalities like inducements if there's a plausible story about the person's character decision to engage in certain conduct. So what we see over and over again are informants who come forward and say, I felt morally obligated to disclose this information about my cellmate or what he told me was just a terrible, terrible thing and I felt compelled to come forward. And for psychological reasons, that's more persuasive to the human mind than, oh, and by the way, I might get a benefit. And so we're feeding into standard features of human cognition when we put informants on the stand in front of jurors to tell stories about why they're coming forward. And this is particularly pernicious because people who have been around the criminal system for any length of time understand that their testimony is more valuable and therefore more valuable to them and they're likely to get a better deal if they can say that they're not motivated by the incentive or in fact that they're not incentivized at all. And many informants will lie on the stand and claim that they do not expect any benefit when everybody in the courtroom except the jury understands that that's a fiction. It's kind of remarkable. Some of these social norms, which I think in everyday life are a good thing, the fact that I will naturally give you the benefit of the doubt when I'm speaking with you, that you're telling the truth and that you're not actually motivated by ulterior motives, that ends up showing up in the courtroom where oftentimes the incentives or the entire structure of what's going on is quite different. Let me change gears a little bit and ask you about what's likely to be the practical rejoinder to some of these complaints. So someone who is in favor of informant testimony is going to say, look, informant testimony is a necessary evil. This is the only way that we can get people to come forward with information, particularly if they're part of a criminal enterprise. And in the book, you are rather skeptical about whether this trade-off is true. And I guess the best way of asking the question here is, does informant testimony in fact 
result in more useful information as opposed to more misleading information? So let me start answering that question by noting that we can't possibly know what the actual cost-benefit analysis of this market is because the government doesn't tell us. We don't require the government to give us data on how many cases they make with informants, how many crimes are committed by their informants, how many times their own informants lie. We simply don't require that kind of accounting of this public policy, as it were. It's sort of a deviant treatment of a public policy that affects millions of people and millions of cases and millions of dollars. We're usually more demanding of the government to come forward with justifications for engaging in what many people do consider to be a necessary evil. Let me back up for a second. To the extent that the use of informants is a quote unquote necessary evil, it's not because it is beneficial. It's because our system is so committed to plea bargaining. In other words, it's a feature of the fact that we are running our entire criminal system as an enormous negotiation. And so once we've decided to have plea bargaining and to permit 95% of all convictions in this country to be the result of a deal, we can't neatly excise the deal that happens to produce information. In other words, the snitch deal. We've already committed to the market. And so what I propose in the book is not what I would say is an unrealistic hope to ban this particular kind of deal, but to regulate it in light of its known risks. And that brings us to the point you're making, which is sometimes informants actually do produce valuable, important information that might not otherwise be obtainable. And one of the stories that I try to tell in the book is how we really have different worlds of informant use and the inequities and the unreliability and the violence and the unfairness are heavily located in drug crimes, street crimes, low-level policing, one-on-one -on -one interactions between informants and police and prosecutors that attend crimes of poverty and, again, especially drug crimes. We see a very different way of handling informants when it comes to high-profile potential defendants, for example, on Wall Street or on Capitol Hill or international organized crime and cartels. And there we see the potential for a more regulated use of informants. So, for example, the FBI tells us that it could not prosecute hedge fund malfeasance without the use of informants. Those people tend to be represented. They tend to have full information about the costs and benefits. They tend not to be under physical threat. And in those spaces, that I think that there are good arguments for saying that regulated, relatively transparent, controlled use of informants produces an obvious benefit. Again, of course, we don't know how many hedge fund managers got away with stealing millions because they were working with the FBI. We know of a few stories, but we, of course, we don't know about all of them. But we could have a debate about the cost benefits in that space. It's very difficult to have that debate in the vast majority of cases of informant use because we don't protect defendants and suspects. We don't give them lawyers. Their negotiations are undocumented. And the government has shown its willingness to place vulnerable people at terrible risk. So I would bifurcate the question. I think in highly regulated spaces of 
well-resourced individuals and institutions, there's evidence that the use of informants can be helpful and maybe even necessary to penetrate organized crime and corrupt political organizations and corporations. You cannot make the same argument when it comes to people with substance use disorders on the street exposed to the pressures of police to become informants. What you've offered there is one of the proposals from your book, of which there are many. So one is to limit the use of informant testimony to certain contexts. Another, which I think is largely implicit, is the use of experts to inform fact finders about the dangers of informant testimony. And in some ways, this is very personal to you because you discuss how you were an expert and probably in a number of cases, but specifically you mentioned your experience as an expert winding your way through the Connecticut courts. On that score, could you, one, tell us a bit more about what experts can do in the space, the kinds of things that you would testify about, and two, what your experience was and how courts have received expert testimony from people like you? So experts are not a cure-all for the ailments of the informant market, but they can be very helpful to jurors who don't appreciate just how entrepreneurial informants can be, just how collusive they can be, and just how unreliable they can be. So for example, as you mentioned, I was called but not permitted to testify in a Connecticut murder case a number of years ago. And what I told the court I would explain to the jury, if given the chance, is how the informant market works, how everyone understands that if they come forward with information, they're likely to be rewarded. If they testify that they have not been rewarded, even though they know they will be rewarded, their testimony is likely to be more valuable. I would have also explained to the jury how often informants, particularly in the jailhouse situation, collude. They discuss their cases. They test their facts against each other beforehand so that their stories will be more credible, so that the jury will believe them and they will all be rewarded more handsomely. Things that a lay person on a jury couldn't possibly be expected to understand. In that particular case, I was called and explained to the judge what I would testify if given the chance. And the judge essentially said, jurors already know that jailhouse informants are unreliable. Your testimony would not be helpful to the jury. And so she didn't permit me to testify. The Court of Appeals disagreed. They overturned the conviction, holding in part that the defendant in that case had the right to call an informant expert to explain these somewhat unintuitive esoteric facts, things you don't see on TV, things you might not get from the popular culture to the jury. And then the Connecticut Supreme Court kind of split the baby. They said it was within the trial court's discretion to exclude an expert like me. But generally speaking, that informant experts are admissible, that defendants can call them, and that they can be helpful to juries. So Connecticut has been kind of at the forefront of exploring this question of when defendants can call informant experts. And it's a burgeoning space of expertise development now. The other solution that I thought I would touch upon actually is very interesting because it's quite analogous to the expert testimony space. So with experts, you usually have Daubert hearings, 
And what you discuss in the book has been a number of reforms that states have taken where there are reliability hearings for informant testimony. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and whether or not you think that's a promising avenue for courts to pursue? I do. I think reliability hearings are very promising. I just stole it from your field. (laughs) I just stole the informant reliability hearing from Daubert on the theory that these are paid witnesses controlled by one side with a special aura of expertise that can confuse and mislead the jury. And so we should treat them just the same way. And the judges should act as gatekeepers as they do for every other kind of paid expert witness and decide whether this particular informant is reliable enough, as we always ask about experts, to be permitted to testify before the jury. Because we do go to trial so infrequently, the reliability hearing is aimed at the trial process. It's consistent with all the ways that we test unreliable evidence, and we just haven't brought it into the informant space. If you don't mind, I'd like to mention one more idea that I stole from your space in expertise, which is not only the gatekeeping Daubert type reliability hearing, but also the idea of defense informants. So one of the problems with the informant market, of course, is that it's monopolized by the government. Only the government can pay its paid witnesses, so to speak. And of course, that's not how we handle it in the civil space at all. In the civil space, we expect a battle of the experts so that both sides can bring forward witnesses who have specialized information and also may be compensated. And so another proposal is the idea that we should create special mechanisms either through the court or maybe a special mechanism in the prosecutor office itself so that if suspects and defendants who have evidence that is favorable to the defendant, in other words, that is exculpatory, that that kind of testimony could also be rewarded in the way that today only inculpatory, only evidence that is bad for the defendant and good for the government gets rewarded. So to kind of even out the playing field a little bit. Fascinating concept, obviously extremely controversial. And in some ways, I think, be careful what you wish for. The battle of the experts is a terrible problem, which is very difficult to solve in the expert space. But I can certainly see what you're saying about trying to level the playing field a little bit. Final question for you. Much has changed, as you mentioned, in the informant landscape since you wrote your first edition almost 15 years ago now. What's been the biggest victory in your mind? And what would be your top priority among the many things that are left to do? I think the biggest victory, and a lot of this credit has to go to the innocence movement that has been working on this issue now for many years, there is just a much more profound appreciation that this is a problem. When I first started writing about this, it was a little bit obscure, a little esoteric. People might have heard of Whitey Bulger and the FBI debacle in the 80s, but other than that, it was not seen as a problem of systemic integrity. It wasn't seen as a problem of reliability, and it wasn't seen as a problem that infects so much of plea bargaining and the war on drugs. And today it is. So the victory is that more and more judges, more and more litigators, more and more legislatures understand that we need to worry about the ways that we pay 
criminal informants and particularly the vulnerable. And that brings me to what I think should be a top priority for all state legislators, which is to ban the use of juvenile informants. And I know this is a little orthogonal to the evidentiary question, but currently there's no limit to the police authority to pressure and flip children when they're in trouble, when they're facing juvenile court or juvenile detention, or even expulsion from school. We have seen the use of young college students as informants on college campuses by college police under threat of expulsion from the school. And it's an example of the way we have just let the free-for-all of the informant market go wild. And so a priority to inject not only safety and reliability, but a deeper sense of proportion and humanity into the informant market would be to put children off limits in this deal-making morass that we've created. Well, Sasha, thanks for taking the time to talk about criminal informants and your new edition of your book. Really enjoyed reading it and great having you on the show. Thanks so much, Ed. I really appreciate it. For the last 15 years, Sasha's work has shown a spotlight on the problem of informant testimony. And apart from its deep social and structural costs, the problem of informant testimony raises fascinating conceptual evidentiary issues. For one thing, paying witnesses for testimony is ordinarily illegal. Yet in the informant context, where the incentives to lie are arguably at their maximum, we allow the government to use compensated witnesses. And the evidentiary benefits of this practice may not even be worth their costs. Undoubtedly, informants generate information that is necessary for prosecution. But whether they generate more good, as in accurate information, over bad or fabricated information is not something that is well studied. And especially given the psychological studies, surely the safeguard for preventing fabrication should simply not be the well-criticized mechanisms of cross-examination and jury instructions. But how can courts ensure greater reliability in informant testimony? Sasha seems confident about Daubert-like reliability hearings. And after thinking about it some more, I think I agree with her. I'm skeptical about Daubert in the expert evidence context, primarily because of concerns about expertise. But judges arguably have greater expertise in assessing credibility and reliability than, say, epidemiology. And being repeat players, I think that judges are likely going to be better than juries at avoiding the usual cognitive pitfalls. Perhaps the most important proposal is to sharply curtail the use of informants to all but the most critical cases and ones where we can expect a full development of facts at trial. If using informants as evidence is tantamount to playing with fire, then maybe using them sparingly is the best response. Clearly, through Sasha's efforts, courts and attorneys are taking note of this difficult problem. 
it'll be interesting to see where things go in the next 15 years, in time for the third edition of Snitching. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.